everybody should have an office pool and we should have some contest where everybody sends us money and we get this big pot and then whoever guesses this question would get you know one one hundredth of that pot and we'd keep the other 99 percent um or some some variation but the question is this how many presidential debates will we have in 2020 welcome to this week in common sense starring paul jacob paul jacob writes a column five days a week at this is commonsense.org i'm talking about the final not the democratic debates earlier in the year i'm talking about head-on-head republican versus democrat and maybe allow somebody else in will there be three debates more zero on monday we uh we talked about of bats and debates and we talked about not only whether uh joe biden and donald trump will face off but whether joe jorgensen who is the libertarian party nominee might also get invited to the debates Chances about zero, zero point zero 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 zero, and somewhere down the line, maybe a one. But interestingly enough, Joe Jorgensen got press because she was bitten by a bat. And as I understand it, very little details in this story. It was all over the place, but no details. It's like they, it, it was just a clickbait. It was, you'd call it a clickbait story. Except there was no story, really. It was just the clickbait headline, kind of. But apparently, she's having to go through <clears throat> uh, the shots that you get uh, if they think maybe you could have been bitten by something that was rabid. Uh, apparently, the, the bat didn't have coronavirus. That's good. Uh, but, <laughs> but anyway, a uh, little bit of an uh, opportunity to get press i i know a fellow who uh, years ago was running as an independent for governor of florida and he landed his i think it was a cessna you know a small plane he landed he had trouble he landed on the interstate and the most press he got in the entire campaign was of course landing his plane on the interstate because he had some sort of uh, plane trouble so uh anyway sometimes strange things happen and you get in the news but it, it brought up the whole issue of the debates and who ought to be in them and how many should there be and so on and so on. And, of course, we talked a lot in uh, 2016 about the debates because people were so fed up with the choice between Trump and Hillary Clinton uh, and wanted another choice. Oh, what was it? Over two-thirds. I think it was 67, 68 percent. Uh, of of voters said they wanted to hear from third party or independent candidates more than just the Republican and the Democrat. And of course, the Republicans and the Democrats have it all fixed to where you've got to already be at 15 percent in the polls in order to get into the debates that are set up by the uh, uh, Committee on Presidential Debates or Commission on Presidential Debates that is formed, was formed by the two parties, is totally protective. They took it away from the League of Women Voters years ago because the League might allow somebody else to participate. And the Republicans and Democrats didn't want that. And after they kept the libertarian candidate, uh, Gary Johnson and Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate, but after keeping them out of the debates in 2016, the... FEC basically acknowledged in a court case that that was a violation, uh, that it was not right for the FEC to allow uh, the uh, Commission on Presidential Debates to exclude uh, folks in that way, in the way that they did. Now, you know, uh, the litigation's complex and, and it's not as if the FEC is really functioning or anything will come of that. Um, but just from a third party standpoint, it is a travesty and a sham, the whole process. Uh, last time, uh, Johnson could have certainly made uh, a huge difference. Uh, Stein could have made some difference, and they made some difference as it was, but had they been out there 
And had the public not been kind of winked at by the whole system, the press, the FEC, the courts, the Republican and Democratic duopoly, which is nowhere in the Constitution, but is increasingly in law, the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, is set up as a Republican-Democrat-governed body. So is the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. And so why should the Securities and Exchange Commission be a bipartisan, Republican-Democrat-governed group? Well, because they're scared to death of the massive power they have and so they set it up to where if you're part of the club, either the blue team or the red team, you've got some protection. You're outside of the red or blue team, you've got no protection. That's called equal protection. That's what the law of the land, that's what our Constitution calls for is equal protection. But what we have again and again, and of course the SEC and the FEC aren't the only cases of it that it just seems to abound uh, in federal law where they're creating agencies and laws that stipulate certain special powers for the two parties. Um, but what's supposed to be equal protection of the law is protection for partisan political operatives and, and uh, the rest of us who aren't part of the team don't have any real protection. But let's get off of that in a second because really the, the thrust of what we were talking about on Monday is the two major parties and the fact that uh, Trump would like to debate a lot more. Now, Biden has already said he would be in three debates. That's what the commission has suggested. He's agreed to it. And what's funny is that that's not the end of the story. That, I mean, you would think that everyone would go, look, Biden already agreed to three debates. What are you talking about? This is silly. This is, you're just trolling. And there's a part of me that thinks, well, in some ways, you know, Trump's trolling, other people are, except you've got all these Democrats who have advised Biden, 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 uh, to keep Biden. And I mean, his, his, uh, it's not really a robot though, because, because he's not on the ropes much. He's just hiding all the time. Um, and he's out there in the media some, but of course the media is his people. The media is... Uh, he can hide in plain sight in the media because they're not going to ask him any tough questions unless he happens to bump into somebody from Fox or something. And the, in the same way that, you know, Donald Trump could be hanging out with Fox people all day long and might not get a tough question. Might, but might not. Um, anyway, the idea that Biden won, the idea that Biden might get replaced on the ticket, which I think now that he's picked Kamala Harris as his vice presidential candidate, we're, you know, we're in mid-August. We're getting pretty close. I think some of those types of, oh, my goodness, he's going to be replaced at the last second. Uh, that's probably not going to happen. But why is it? Why is this a discussion? It's a discussion because the Democratic nominee for president of the United States, the leader, possible leader of the free world, is not really up to the job, is just sort of obviously from what little people have seen. And even though he's not running the kind of arduous campaign that these people, you know, when I think in a usual year, when they're pounding the pavement day after day during the primaries, and then when the primaries are over, they've got the nomination. They don't, you know, it's not like you get a couple of months to kind of chill out by the pool. You're just, you're going all the time. It's physically and mentally demanding. And this year, there's not much of that at all. It's not at all demanding in those ways. And yet, Joe Biden is having a heck of a time coming up with the right word to say or responding in ways that don't create a big gaffe or don't just kind of tell people that you're having trouble you know, making senses and, and saying what, what you think. And of course, it, you know, some people said he's got dementia or something. He's 77 years old. Um, I don't know. I don't actually think that it's dementia. Uh, I don't know. I'm not a medical doctor. Um, if, if you've got dementia, don't call me. Um, but, uh, but it is the sort of thing where he's clearly having some cognitive issues. And 
so I read an article. This was months ago, and and uh, you know this isn't new. Uh, he's had issues all along as he's won the Democratic nomination. We don't have to have someone who can actually form sentences or or complete thoughts. Uh, but but I do think that he may have had um, some physical uh, problems that created a thing, a, a little syndrome. I, maybe that's not the right word for it medically, but a situation in which he sometimes has trouble getting, you know, for the synapses in the in the brain to work exactly right. And it's not a matter necessarily of dementia. It's a matter of just sometimes that happens if you've had a brain injury. And then, of course, as I understand it, he was, um, I know his family, you know, he had family members killed in an accident. So I believe he's been in, in uh, uh, auto accidents that could have created that type of situation. Anyway, it's all speculative. We don't know. What we do know is that he doesn't appear to be with it in a way that you would expect the president of the United States to be with it. And, and granted, um, there was a poll, and I think we've mentioned this uh, before, but there was a poll weeks ago where 50% of the people taking the poll said Joe Biden is not up to the job of being president. And 50% of that 50, in other words, half of the people who said that's, that's the truth, he's not up to it, half of them said they're going to vote for him anyway. Well, you think, how is that possible? Well, I saw polls in 2016 that 58, 60% of the American people had a negative attitude about Donald Trump. Um, a majority of the people in the country don't like him. And yet he won the election. And the truth is he may win again with a majority of the people not particularly liking him. And, and I can say, um, I don't particularly like him. Um, it's not the personality uh, traits that I admire. Um, he's not the type of guy that, that I aspire to be or that I think other people should. Um, he's kind of a jerk a lot of times, uh, just not the demeanor I would have. And I think he said some things that I find despicable. He, you know, believes in if torture is a good thing. I don't. I mean, there's some some philosophical, serious disagreements. But at the same time, I have not decided that I can just label him, and we'll get to this in some of the other scripts this week, uh, that I can just label him a fascist, an authoritarian, a pure evil, someone who wants to be a dictator, and just kind of start projecting everything on him. And if Joe Biden is the next president, I'm going to support Joe Biden where he is doing the right thing, and I'm going to fight him where he's doing the wrong thing. And I suspect I'm going to spend most of my time fighting him. Um, Donald Trump, I think, has done some some wonderful things. I think Gorsuch uh, for the Supreme Court is the best pick in my lifetime. Um, not as excited about Kavanaugh, but the truth is, when you think of Republican presidents going all the way back to, to uh, Reagan, they've been horrible Supreme Court justice pickers. I mean, they've, they've we've got half the times we've gotten somebody who the, the Democrats thought, oh, we might not have been able to get somebody that left wing through. Uh, you know, uh, David Souter was picked uh, by George W. H.W. Uh, Bush, the first Bush. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to think if he ever voted with the other conservative justices on the court ever. Um, and so there's all these justices that Republican presidents have picked in the past who have been weak or worse than weak. And, uh, and yet, you know, Trump is for the most part two for two. Uh, and I think one of his picks was super. He's also done some things like confront China uh, and and I think start to confront some of our allies about, you know, he gets nothing but grief for confronting uh, NATO countries about paying, you know, spending money on the military that they've pledged to spend on the military. Um, but I think that's a wonderful thing that he's done that. And of course, I think you could do it in a way that's not like Trump, uh, that's a nicer way. But I'll tell you something. I look at, like I think about uh, like the, the stupid things, and I don't know a, a better word than just stupid, 
that he says about uh, Xi Jinping or somebody else, you know, it's just, it's, uh, uh, you know, he's effusive with ridiculous praise and so on. And, and so I don't always like the style, but I think about the fact that the Obama administration never confronted China about anything that I can tell. Please correct me. Anybody who's got better information, I'll, I'll accept it and, and recognize it as correct if I believe it is. So, so send it to me because I could just be wrong. Maybe I'm missing something. But I don't see them ever confronting China. I don't see George W. Bush ever really confronting China. Uh, and I'm not talking about just, you know, be mean to China. I don't want to be mean to China. Confronting the fact that they're that they have concentration camps, the fact that they're threatening allied countries, free countries uh, with attack, uh, that they are stealing all kind of intellectual property, um, so on and so on. Uh, Bill Clinton didn't confront China. When you think about it, uh, they haven't been after Tiananmen Square. It was kind of like, hey, these are great guys. As as uh, as Joe Biden says, they're not bad folks, folks. Well, you know, the Chinese people are wonderful folks. The Chinazis, as the folks in Hong Kong call them, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, uh, they're not fine folks. They're horrible folks. They're terrible, horrible tyrants. And to think that... Um, that we have just let that take place. It's scary. And of course, we're now in a situation, we don't have any scripts this week about uh, China or Hong Kong or, or some of those issues. Um, but we are in a situation now where people are talking about war and, and you know, look, I, I don't think they're about to invade Taiwan. I sure hope that China is not. I think they're, they're gonna, they'll meet, meet a, a ready foe if they do that. Um, and the U.S. certainly is pledged to be there and, and help. And that makes it very difficult for China to somehow think they can get away with it. But all this talk about war, I don't want war. Nobody who's sane wants a war between the U.S. and China. But at a certain point, keeping our mouth shut because we want to get along with China, which is what looked like the National Basketball Association was doing, looks like what uh, oftentimes Google and Apple and other big companies are doing. Let's keep our mouths shut and make money. And facilitating this behemoth that believes in zero democracy, in total state power, um, that's dangerous. And the truth is to me, we're more likely to someday find ourselves at war with the Chinese if we don't confront the terrible things they're trying to do and get united in not going along with it. We don't have to, we don't have to drop a bomb, fire a gun. We have to stand up and say, enough. You're not getting away with it anymore. And that's starting to happen. And it's funny because in some ways it's easy with all the the Trumpism. Everything's about Trump and he's bad, he's evil, he's good, he's... But with all of the Trump stuff, sometimes it's easy for me to get a thought, well, you know, maybe if someone else was there, they could unify folks against that threat. Except then I have to come back to the reality that, but they didn't. They were there. They didn't step up. It's kind of like you're always hoping uh, before Trump took office, he uh, said something about Boeing building a, the next Air Force One for, what was it, $4 billion or something. And he said, no, no, we're not spending $4 billion on a plane. No. In fact, he made some public statement and, and uh, Boeing lost a few percentage points on their uh, stock price. Um, and, and, but you, the American people have been waiting for someone to behave a little bit like a businessman and to say, no, I'm not going to be ripped off. And of course, most businessmen in America are not like Donald Trump. 
but most businessmen in America can appreciate whether your personality is Donald Trump or, you know, Mother Teresa, they can appreciate someone who will stand up and say, that's an outrageous price. And I'm not going to I'm not going to throw money away. It's not my money. It's the taxpayers money. And the truth is, we have not had a president who's willing to spend any political capital on those sorts of things. And and so it, it's it's funny. We've got we've got somebody who is just so clearly, I think, uh, in, in President Trump, so clearly not the personality that we want. And I say we because I know the you know Democrats don't want that personality. They don't want him. But even a lot of Republicans don't. And yet at the same time, he's won because he was a better option than the other. And of course, now you have Joe Biden, who's not really with it. But he might somehow be the better option than the other option. Or he may lose and Trump may win with a majority of the country against Trump because they see that I don't particularly like him. But it's better than having somebody as president who who knows what's going to happen because he's not really up to the job. And um, so anyway, that's uh, uh, the other thing about all of this is. The whole idea that how many debates we're going to have and how they'll be formatted. We're spectators. We've got no role in this for the most part. The American people, how many debates do we want? Who cares? Who cares what we want? Nobody in politics does. They don't need us. They've got us. They've got the wedges. We're going to fight with each other. They're going to get half or more or a little less. Who knows who will win? But they don't need us. And I long for a day in which the presidential campaigns are saying, no, we're only going to have this many debates, and then are moved by public opinion that says, oh, no, we want more debates. And if you don't agree to be in more debates, you're going to lose support. In other words, it's, it's, it's the same sort of thing with campaign finance reform. I think you have so many people who want to write all these rules to stop all the bad money, uh, but allow all the good money. And and of course, nobody can agree what the good money or bad money is. But at the end of the day, if American voters aren't willing to take into account that information, which for the most part, I think people have not been very intrigued by that information, in, in large part because both candidates on the ballot <laughs> in most of the races are going to have taken money from everybody they can get it from. Um, you know, all the all the candidates on the left screaming about, you know, big oil or this or that, uh, they're still taking money from those. Oh, we hate corporations, but I'm taking money from corporations. Um, so but again. They're not scared of us and we need the only good politician is the scared politician. We as voters have to change this dynamic to where we start to determine how many debates there are. And we determine whether taking that contribution is going to be devastating or not. And occasionally it's going to be devastating because we care about something. Um, and, you know, anytime I think about uh, people taking contributions and people holding them accountable for it, I think about the one of the big problems we have is it's not just the politicians who are somewhat on the take, it's the media. And I, I say that because we've talked a lot about the Washington Post, New York Times, others taking money from the Chinese, the Chinazis, the Chinese government to run all kinds of uh, inserts and in many cases, uh, allegedly uh, features that come off like news pieces that are not news pieces. They're written by the Chinese Communist Party officials and printed in the online on the Washington Post website and so on, um, and the New York Times. And what's amazing to me is that these newspapers who are so quick to see how politicians taking money from a source could cause them to be not quite 
accountable to the people and instead maybe just accountable to that financial source without it ever dawning on them that they shouldn't take money from foreign governments to advertise in their newspaper. But they did. And I, I have not seen those advertisements uh, for a while, Tim. Uh, and I suspect because enough people now know about it that it's become too embarrassing. And of course, because the problems with the Chinazis have become the stuff of everyday news stories and the average American knows the problem, uh, even if the Washington Post and the New York Times don't quite appreciate it. The way you're leading into this subject of the media and uh, Trump, it sounds like you want to talk about Thursday's piece next. Yes, I think we should. I think we should. Um, because it, it, it's the, the title of the piece is uh, Authority Derangement Syndrome. And everybody's familiar with Trump Derangement Syndrome. But I think sometimes we don't fully appreciate two factors. One, how Trump derangement syndrome kind of morphs into a bigger derangement syndrome. And then I think we also don't notice that not only is there this element of Trump derangement syndrome, but there's also this element of the Democratic Party, political activists, the media, moving to the left and not to the ACLU liberal, classical liberal, civil libertarian left, but to the progressive pro-union, pro-government uh, left. And I think that that's, you know, it, it's, it is a huge factor in what's happening political, politically that it's not just the two parties who have become partisan and, um, and corrupt, but I think that we have a, and I'm not saying that it's a taking money, you know, bribery, criminal corrupt, but we have an intellectual corruption at the very least of, I think, large parts of the media. And this particular story, we, we're talking about the Atlantic uh, here, and there's a piece by Amanda Mull uh, called America's Authoritarian Governor. And uh, this isn't about Trump. It's about Georgia's governor, Brian Kemp. And uh, he was in the race against uh, Stacey Abrams that she still says was stolen from her. Of course, no evidence of how it was stolen, but, but still says it's stolen and blah, blah, blah. And so she was the darling of the media. And of course, he being a Republican is considered kind of less than a full human being by most of the media. And so he's being attacked. And I'm sure there's all kinds of things he can be legitimately attacked on. Don't get me wrong there. Um, but what's so interesting here is that she doesn't attack him on anything that's very legitimate. The whole thrust of the piece is that somehow because he's listening to Trump, even though there's no evidence that he's doing what he's doing because somehow he's listening to Trump. It's just all assertion on her part. But because somehow he's listening to Trump instead of his constituents. Now, of course, never does Amanda Maul bother to mention that a majority of his constituents, well, first of all, his constituents are not all on the same page as far as this goes. They're not all of the same opinion. We're talking about the coronavirus and the response to it. That's her main issue, right? Yes, it, it is her main issue. But in part, I didn't want to get too much into the coronavirus because I think people will have a tendency, uh, if they disagree with Brian Kemp on his policies toward the coronavirus, to say, oh, well, he's a terrible... But her attack is not on the policies that he's looking forward to. I mean, that, that's kind of the backdrop. That's kind of the setup of her piece is that it's about coronavirus and so on. But she doesn't say he's terrible because he's done this and this and this with coronavirus. In fact, um, anyway, I, I was gonna mention, 
you know, saying that somehow he's out of step with his constituents. Well, first of all, majority elected him, but a majority, if he was listening to Trump, also elected Trump. Georgia went for Trump last time. So there's this this kind of always attacking as if even though the majority is Republican, the majority is really Democrat, um, which is kind of a pretend world that our media lives in. Um, but the but the interesting thing, too, is that she calls him an authoritarian. Uh, and I guess that's an easier word than totalitarian or whatever, but that's the kind of the word of the of the day is authoritarian. And um, and I don't like it that much because it seems like it just fits everybody. But somehow he's an authoritarian. Why? Because he is not willing to shut down the economy on his order. He's not willing to just close everything fast enough, hard enough, long enough. And so he's an authoritarian. But of course, he's an authoritarian only because she's arguing that people who don't agree with her authorities are somehow authoritarian. Well, it doesn't make any sense if you understand the word. And of course, the whole idea that somehow, you know, uh, we don't seem to even have an inkling that the power of a governor, a single person in a state of millions of people, to have the power to just shut down every business, that's not authoritarian. That doesn't even have just the hint of authoritarianism to it. And so for someone to write a story, and if you want to attack Trump and Kemp for their policies and show how those policies are authoritarian, have at it. But if you want to attack them as authoritarians, without ever looking at their policy, but it's almost by your assertion. Well, we know Trump is evil, terrible. So of course, the motivations for this policy or that policy must be terrible. She also uh, has this one line about that all of this comes at the expense of democracy. And this is, I didn't, I didn't address it really in the piece. She said too many ridiculous things to address them all. It's a short, uh, I, I do short commentaries. But she talked about it coming at the expense of democracy. And it, it has become my biggest pet peeve, this idea that democracy is you winning the election and governing as you want to. That's what democracy is. If you don't win the election, then it's not democracy. If you win the election, but you don't get to govern just exactly how you wanted to, that's not democracy. That has become the left view of democracy. We get to win every time. And I know they're frustrated with the Electoral College and then, you know, Gore pretty much looks like he won the actual vote if people in Palm Beach Florida would have been able to figure out those stupid ballots that they that they imported from Chicago, uh, nice democratic city, and uh, and then and of course they lose with Trump even though they got more votes. And I understand the frustration, but I don't understand the idea that somehow democracy is me always winning. In fact, to me. You don't support democracy unless you can embrace the idea that I'm going to lose sometimes and that's going to be okay. That's why we have a constitution and protection for human rights, because you're going to lose sometime. And if, you, if, if the system you want is I win every time, that's, uh, well, that could be labeled authoritarian. And really, when it gets right down to it, the idea that government can just do anything they want because it's good policy because they have a, you know, they have a rationale from some scientist who says it. I mean, that sounds, I mean, that's just nuts. That's not democratic at all. I mean, democracy isn't about the governor telling you if you can have business or live your life or not. That's not what democracy is. It's never been what right, it is. Right. It's, it's an it's an absurd statement. 
when I was a kid, and I'm you know from a conservative, uh, libertarian-oriented household, and we knew that America was not a democracy; it was a republic, and it was a representative democracy or a democratic republic. Or there are different ways to say it, but we understood the difference between democracy as a pure democracy. And as I've gotten older and have talked to a lot of people who talk about democracy and have discovered that every one of them, except for a handful of lunatics, view democracy as a system in which there are elections where there are protections set in law for human rights. And so that the person who wins the election doesn't just get to take over and do whatever they darn well please. And so I, I've, I've kind of accepted that we're a democracy. Like if someone says it, you know, I know some people bristle, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. I, I figure, look, there's so many fights to fight. I'm, I'm not that interested in spending a lot of time fighting that one. Although I understand, you know, some of the arguments with it. But this new definition, which is democracy is, the whole meaning of democracy is for Democrats to win. It just shows how little they care about democracy. And, you know, it's interesting because the the biggest problem we have is that nobody cares about democracy, just about. The public does. But the public, we, we are pretty much divorced. They have divorced us. They've <laughs> left us. They've left us with the kids. And, uh, and so they don't give a darn what we think. The, the, when Democrats are in charge of state legislatures, the initiatives that come from the people tend to be conservative. And those Democratic legislators try to just rip that process up and destroy it because the last thing they want is democracy if they're not going to win the vote. And, in re, and over the last decade or so, decade ago, I was fighting Democratic legislator here or there. Every once in a while, there'd be a Republican legislature trying to screw up the initiative because someone did a liberal one. Well, over the course of the decade, especially, uh, you know, Obama led, uh, there was a bunch of Republican gains in state legislatures. They took over more and more. And of course, what's the first thing they did? Oh my goodness, there's this process that the, the voters can do stuff that we don't want them to do. And they went after the process and they're continuing to go after it. And of course, in some states that are, are you know more Democrat, the Democrats are still going after it. But to see that flip and to realize that people who can give pretty speeches about democracy don't really give a flying flip about democracy. And they will outlaw it in a New York minute if they don't think they'll win the vote. Um, so this, uh, this, it's it's uh, Trump derangement syndrome because boy, any mention of Trump, no one can focus on any concept or any law or any policy. It's just love him, hate him, insanity. But it's more than that too. It's refusing. It's pretending to support democracy when we're just going to rewrite that rule. It's the New York Times, as we talked about a week or so ago, writing a big piece about how liberty, they they want there to be liberty. But of course, liberty has been redefined, not as you actually having the freedom to do what you want, but getting a lot of stuff from the government free. Um this is this is where we are, and it 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 makes for a a weird world. I mean, I'm constantly thinking this, this world has gone insane, and I don't think I'm alone. And so, you know, if, if nothing else, uh, this podcast can be our you know our uh, what do you call it? I, I'm not good at the touchy feely stuff, Tim. What is it? It's our it's our uh, therapy session. Oh, that's what it is. Okay, I wasn't sure about yeah. that. I was going to be cry into the storm, uh, shouts into the wind. Uh, I don't know what it is exactly. Well, that may that may be what the result is, but we're hoping for more. But on the way, we're gonna we're gonna uh, we're gonna be. I'm okay. You're okay.
Anyway, talk. Let's talk about something that's not okay, and we'll jump back into uh, into our order, which is nor excessive fines imposed. And I I love it. There's not a whole lot to say about this particular event uh, that happened back in at the end of July, um, except hooray. There is a constitution. There then were 10 amendments that were made to those constitution, which, of course, take precedence over anything written in that constitution because it has been amended now. And those are the Bill of Rights. And number eight on that list was that you couldn't have excessive fines, cruel and unusual punishment, uh, you know, and and so pretty straightforward except that sometimes government thinks ah, we don't really have to follow any of the rules. And so we have all kinds of situations in which fines are excessive and outrageous and destructive uh, to individuals and to whole systems. Not only are individuals oftentimes, uh, you know, kept poor and unable to enter into the marketplace in the way they'd like, because of fines and, and different things like that. Um, but we have systems where, you know, when, when Ferguson, Missouri happened and, you know, Michael Brown and, and talking about police brutality and so on, the underside of that, that didn't get talked about as much, but I think a lot of people started to figure out is you've got all these small cities in suburban St. Louis, right outside of St. Louis city who are funded on tickets and other fines imposed on people. And, and I say funded, largely funded, a huge percentage of, of their money. And that creates a system in which you wonder, is, are the, is the public the master setting the rules of society or are we the victims just being plundered? And uh, anyway, the Ninth Circuit, uh, so <laughs> this, was, this was the crazy circuit. No, the Ninth Circuit sometimes is good on stuff, uh, depending on what it is. And I don't know that this is really necessarily something I'd expect the Ninth Circuit to be good on. It's, it's probably the most liberal circuit, uh, and probably not probably. Um, and yet they ruled, yes, the Eighth Amendment actually applies. It means what it says, and it has to be taken into account. And interestingly enough, in the particular case that was before the Ninth Circuit, they did not rule that the fines were excessive. They sent it back to the court to decide whether the fines were excessive. But what they ruled basically was that this is a legitimate point of inquiry for the court to decide if these fines are excessive. And I think part of it here was there were late fines and other things put on top of it uh, that may have been excessive. But the bottom line is this. I won't go on and on about it. It's always wonderful when a court of law actually looks at the Constitution, reads it, doesn't come up with some screwy new meaning for the words and just goes by the meaning that all of us seem to understand when we read it and applies it. There are times, there was that case earlier this year about uh, whether, whether uh, Oklahoma, about half of Oklahoma is still owned by uh, uh, Native American tribes. And... Um, and of course, it'll get sorted out. But the Supreme Court, with Neil Gorsuch uh, writing the opinion, as I understand it, uh, said, "No, no, no. The, you didn't. You didn't abrogate that treaty. Congress has has the power to do it, but never did it." And as much as that's messy, and I think a lot of courts would say, "Oh, that's too messy. We're going to just dream up this new power that we have to say it's okay to." to count it as if you did something that you never did, which was abrogate the treaty. Instead, they said, no, that's what it is. It is what it is. And forced the government 
to abide by the law. People think about government and they think about us and criminal justice and that the issue is to get us to abide by the law. That's not tough. Look, if, if people want to break the law all the time, there's too many of us. They're not very good at enforcing it against us all if we want to break it. The truth is people don't want to break the law. And the difficult part of government is getting the government to follow the law, not getting the people to follow the law. And that's why this decision by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals of all circuits is just absolutely wonderful. And it places a check on local governments, which are as, sometimes as rapacious as, you know, the, the federal government. I mean, they, they, they can they, be bad. They sure can. They can be every bit as bad and they're closer to you. So they sometimes they can have a lot more uh, impact. And at the end of this piece, I should have mentioned, we talk about the outrageous, ridiculous use of red light cameras. And of course, one of the things that got me following it in the first place was all the referendums that were being done to try to block red light cameras. And you would see city councils going and, you know, city managers and so on, going to these red light camera companies and inking a deal before it was ever public to avoid the referendum. And then when the referendum comes and people are collecting signatures saying, no, 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 we don't want these red light cameras. And I believe it is still true that never, ever, ever in the history of dozens and dozens of red light camera referendum have the voters ever voted for the red light cameras. And it kind of surprised me because you know, I know most people are, are pretty conservative. Look, the speed limit is the speed limit. They don't like you driving way over. Don't don't run the stoplight if you don't want to get a ticket. You know, uh, maybe use your turn signal every once in a while. I know I have trouble with that one. Um, you know, so people are, I, I was a little surprised that they were so adamant. I think it is the nature of the red light cameras and the way government was was using them in many cases, when they first came in, they were shortening the yellow light. I mean, in other words, they saw that this is not about our safety. This is about our city government ripping us off again, using us like guinea pigs and, and you know, kind of people of prey to let's go get a little extra money. So uh, anyway, I, I sh should have mentioned that uh, that's something that, again, might we might have another angle at some of these red light cameras in that the fines can be excessive. So, Well, your next day piece was also about local governments doing something not for the benefit of the people themselves. I mean, very yes. bizarre regulations on hair care. 500-hour shampoo sham was the, uh, was the title. And it's the kind of thing that this is one of those stories that you read it and then you're like, I better look further at this because surely um, no one would think that it was a good idea to require a 500-hour training for, get this, <clears throat> it's an important position, mind you, shampoo assistant. Now, this is not the person at a barbershop or salon who's shampooing the hair or the first person, the top person responsible for the shampoo. This is the assistant, the assistant shampooer. And in New York, New York State, and of course I, I, uh, <clears throat> I live in Virginia and I see lots of ads, not so much as, as there were a couple of years ago, but New York State is always advertising how friendly they are for business. And you, you know that there are all these business people that hear it on their radios as they're driving out of the state to their new destination. Yeah. But, but it's, just, it's just hilarious. What kind of place, you know, if, if you think back to like the 50s and the 60s, very few occupations, you know, surgeon, uh, doctor, you know, that sort of, of position, attorney. You had to be licensed. You had to go through all this rigmarole. We've, we have just expanded that in a tremendous way. And it's great 
for people who have those skills already and are already established, it's a great way for those people to block others from competing with them and, and so on. And so if you believe that some people ought to have a certain privileged place in our society by law, well, then you support that sort of stuff. Or if you think, and some people could, you know, there are going to be certain positions. I think that's why most people kind of think doctors should be licensed. I'm skeptical, but, but um, because it's too dangerous. And there could be, there could be the case. I mean, think about it. You could have somebody who they've never shampooed anybody's hair before. Maybe they've never, they don't know what water is. And so they get really hot water really hot and it burns their hands and it burns the person's head or maybe they don't really understand and someone says geez i'd like hot water the water is too cold so they boil the water and then they pour the boiled water on their head or they pour the boiled water on everybody's head in the entire barber shop could be pretty dangerous that is the argument for 500 hours of training for a shampoo assistant. And the only argument against it is common sense. Maybe a society where there was a certain expectation of common sense would have a lot more people able to go to work and earn their own money to live their life the way they want to, independent of others, because they have not only freedom, but financial independence, because they got a job and they could work their way into it. And they weren't treated as someone who was unsafe, at, as Ralph Nader would say, at any speed, until they've had 500 hours of training. It reminds me, it's, it's not maybe quite as insane, but close, um, of all the situations all over the country where you had, as cornrowing hair took off, and you had, uh, you know, usually black women, because that's who was cornrowing hair, who were, they, you'd see them, I'd see them on, you know, when I was in high school and stuff, on the bus, they're cornrowing somebody's hair. And, you know, I never thought, oh my gosh, this is dangerous. I need to call somebody. They're cornering somebody's hair without 500 hours of training or ever being to a barber college or whatever. In state after state, these folks, if they wanted to make money doing that, had to go to a barber school to get a certificate in doing something that they didn't do. The barber schools didn't know how to cornrow hair. They didn't have any classes on that. But if you wanted to do that, since it's dealing with hair, you had to go to the officialdom of barber, you know, topia or whatever, and, and get your certificate. That's a recipe for a working class that can't get to work and can't therefore move up. It destroys entrepreneurship. It's just so terrible in every way, shape, and form. And, um, and at least in this case in New York, it's just so obvious to see. It's silly. It shows we're not a step beyond reasonableness. We're 65 billion miles beyond reasonableness. And <clears throat> that's something that all over the country, this is a problem. Some places more than others. But there's no state in this country that doesn't have a, a zillion regulations and licensing laws that are totally unnecessary. And we did a, a commentary maybe about a year or so ago, it seems like, where in Arizona, at least I think we did, uh, Arizona passed a law saying that if you were licensed in the state you moved from, to do whatever occupation, you were deemed qualified to do it in Arizona. And I think there was, in some cases, there may have been something that you might have to take some continuing, you know, if that was part of the Arizona law, uh, some continuing education or, or what have you, and continue to abide by the Arizona law. 
But instead of moving to a new state and losing your ability to work, you immediately can go to work if you move to Arizona. And what does that say? It says, you know what? If you're moving to Arizona, you don't have to worry that there's some, the man in Arizona who's decided I'm going to take away all your, uh, I'm just going to strip you of all your abilities until you do some stupid paperwork to um, and pay money uh, to be able to work. You mentioned doctors and the licensing of doctors and nurses and so forth. We should mention that Milton Friedman in Capitalism and Freedom, that was the example he gave of how bad licensing was. He took the hardest case, doctors, and he made the case against licensing with the hardest case. And uh, it's, so it's kind of an impressive bit of reasoning. I've always thought that underwriters laboratory, uh, which you don't think twice about, you see it on all kinds of different things. And it's, you know, kind of the good housekeeping seal of approval, which of course is also not a government seal. Um, but there are all kinds of ways for people to cooperate with one another, for people to study different products and determine that they're safe or not safe. And for us to get that information and uh, you know, our society has decided that government should mandate certain things, but uh, you know, think about it. Almost every cord we use, or appliance, or different things, uh, has been a, a approved in a sense as safe and effective for us without the government being involved in any way. So you kind of wonder then, when uh, editors and journalists in major newspapers can't handle an idea from their opposition. I know that's a little bit of a stretch there, but I, but, but it's, it's getting late in the podcast. We're now almost at an hour. And <laughs> and and I was just thinking of the Times and, uh, you know, the Senator Cotton, who uh, wrote a piece that was controversial. Uh, the editor who, who accepted it got fired, as you relate in your Friday yes. piece. And yes. uh, it's really strange uh, that people can't really handle a really strong argument. I mean, that's kind of what I was thinking about when Milton Friedman, he went for this, an amazing, difficult argument and shocked people. I mean, people were shocked by capitalism and freedom when it came out in the, in the sixties. Uh, but, uh, apparently now a Senator writing in the New York times shocks the other editors at the newspaper because he said something they disagreed with. Well, it's interesting. He shocked and upset the staff. So all of these journalists were upset that their paper published an opinion piece by someone whose opinion they don't care for. That is it's just incredible to think of folks who went through journalism school and now have a job in journalism whose commitment is to silence ideas they don't like. It makes you wonder whether maybe we're not getting everything in our news stories that we ought to get. Um, and, you know, one of the one of the interesting things about this, and we've, we've talked a lot about the cancel culture and we've talked about, um, you know, this this idea that we don't need to hear any ideas that haven't been, you know, when, when it came to the coronavirus, if somebody's saying something that the CDC hasn't approved, it should somehow be blocked from YouTube or, or that the World Health Organization hasn't approved. And, you know, one of the things that you have to get people to pay attention to is freedom of speech is important against governments who want to silence opposition and silence, uh, you know, our ability to associate with each other. But it's, <clears throat> there's also a very important benefit when a society, and it doesn't have to be, you know, government mandated, uh, it can't be government, you know, banned uh, and enforced, but, but the government could have nothing to do with it if a society decides, let's debate things and let's let people say what they want to say and we'll get to the right solution in the end if, if every voice can be heard. And if we can have good debates where, you know, we respect each other and aren't scared of someone having a different opinion. Um, or we could say, no, um, we're free to say whatever we want, 
But if there is debate that we don't like, we're going to try to hurt you economically. We're going to do whatever we can to cancel you and your stuff. And um, that has nothing to do with the First Amendment per se, but it has everything to do with the type of society that we live in. It has everything to do with the type of intellectual curiosity we're going to have, which matters in terms of life-saving medicines, in, in terms of innovations and inventions and so on that could, you know, give us much better lives, that, you know, will give us some spaceship to fly off of when the asteroids come in. And what if that's, that's the future of mankind either being kind of stilted and stagnant and slow and limited or not? But this piece uh, by Barry Weiss also pointed out something else, which, which you know, causes me to think about that this sort of, of kind of backing away and shutting down can happen so much faster than you think. And she talks about that in the newsroom, and at the New York Times, people don't want to come up with an idea unless they're pretty sure it fits the narrative that everybody or that the gang or the mob or that the majority or that the vocal few or whatever it is, she's talking about self-censorship. She's talking about journalists realizing my best way to get ahead in this job and my wife or my husband really wants me to get ahead in this job and my kids, you know, I want them to go to a good school and boy, that's going to cost money. I kind of need to get ahead in this job. And those pressures are causing journalists to not voice that idea, to not suggest they do a story on X because that may lean more conservative and not liberal. And that may truncate my dreams of moving up the, you know, the, the ladder at the New York Times or where have you. And so, you know, this, it's, it's important that we separate freedom of speech politically, our rights from a robust speech in society. But I want both. And I think you're crazy if you don't want both. We have to have the rights, but we also want that society. We want the place where the guy who has some crazy idea about coronavirus or anything else can verbalize it. Because you know what? We don't know everything about this virus. That crazy guy might have the solution. And we have ways to test it. That's what real science, instead of consensus science, is all about. So, look, we say all the time, Tim, freedom of speech is America's gift to the world. And we're talking about it in a political sense. But, baby, it's not just in a political sense. Freedom of speech and a society with robust speech and communication and with the confidence that you're not going to be slapped down if you say something that everybody else hasn't already said. <clears throat> that is a future that, that we want. This idea that we can somehow, either by a private mobocracy, force people to say and do what we want, like we're, like we're the Chinazis, uh, but we're going to do it all you know, by just boycotts and shaming, uh, that's not headed the right place. And, um, and so that's, this is, I think, <clears throat> you know, this, so this episode at the New York times, which is on the, after numerous other episodes, uh, really shows that, you know, the, the nation's most respected newspaper is just can't be respected anymore. And it's, it really is sad to me. I've never Politically, the New York Times has never been the editorial board I've I've liked, 
but I've always had respect for that paper. And in recent years, it's just evaporated. Um, <clears throat> but it's not just about the New York Times. It's not just about government. It's about us. And we have to demand our rights. And we have to build the sort of society that we want. And that means we have to stand up against cancel culture because they may have the right to cancel us, to cancel others, but we don't want to live there and we don't have to. You know, I was a sub-editor at a magazine for many years and uh, I edited Milton Friedman for one thing. We published something about Milton Friedman and uh, I didn't agree with Milton Friedman's point, uh, but I was quite happy that to publish Milton Friedman. I mean, that's the, the idea that I wouldn't would have seemed absurd to me. And we published a lot of stuff. You know, we were a libertarian magazine. It was Liberty Magazine back in Port Townsend when I lived in Port Townsend many, many years ago. And uh, we never thought our job was to have one point of view with the magazine. We thought that everybody in our vague camp should have a voice in our magazine because we wanted all sorts of argument. And the New York Times, as has been demonstrated here, they're acting as if these all these sub-editors and staffers, they're acting as if they're not running a newspaper, they're running a newsletter for a faction of a political party. There is, it's just a one ideological faction, and that's what they want to publish, it's just the faction. And I think it looks that way because it is that way. This has been This Week in Common Sense. My name is Timothy Verkula, and on behalf of Paul Jacob, I thank you for stopping by. This podcast is available on YouTube, on SoundCloud, and accessible by podcatchers such as Apple's and Google's, Pocket Cast, and Stitcher. Come back again next weekend. Thank you. <laughs>